Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. As is our tradition, we'll go around the room and say our names before we hear from our speaker today. If I may all start, my name is Roy. John. Christian. Amos. Ian. Gary. Kenny. John. <coughs> Rhett. Michael. Sada <coughs> Mark. Adam. Lee. Patrick. Dale. My name is Cass. Mitch. Dan. David. And Jack. John. My name is Jerry. My name is Brian. My name is Tatuan. I'm Ralph. Kara. Jesse. Rick. David, George, Brian, Baruch, Hal, <coughs> my name is Paul, Jeff, I'm Tom, I'm Jerry, my name is Paige, Peter, my name is Tony, Dave. Jennifer Barrison is a unique blend of singer, songwriter, teacher, and activist. Over the course of 11 albums, she has developed and explored recurring themes with a rare wisdom. Her lifelong involvement in the environment, women's movements, and other justice-based movements, as well as an interest in Buddhism and earth-based spirituality is at the heart of her writing. She teaches at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Her ongoing class since 1997 is entitled The Healing Ecstasy of Sound and explores music as a spiritual practice from a wide range of cross-cultural, traditional, and contemporary perspectives. Jennifer will also be sharing with us some information about a special event that's coming up uh, for her in November. So let's welcome her. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's great to be back with you all. This is... I'm always in such a good mood when I wake up and know that um, it's time to come back and be with you because it's, uh, it's so much better than just sitting at home and reading the paper on Sunday morning. <laughs> and I have to say it's also one of the most um, pleasurable experiences of singing for me to have all these great male voices, which is not always where I find myself in rooms of only men, which is <laughs> quite wonderful. So it's a pleasure to be back with you. Um, many of you are familiar faces to me now. Some of you probably haven't experienced me before. And what I'm going to do is weave some thoughts and poems and a little bit of teachings with practices of chant and song today. Um, so there's a woman named Bernice Johnson Reagan who was part of a group called Sweet Honey in the Rock for a long time, African-American group of a cappella singers. <clears throat> she talked about in her tradition the role of 
song. You know, in um, post-slavery, African-American, and, well, and certainly during slavery, um, song was considered and is considered um, as important as, you, know, you have to have food, mm-hmm. shelter, water, and you have to have music and dance to be considered a whole person. If you don't sing and you don't dance at all, there's often in, in traditions and in indigenous traditions all over the world, there's an understanding that something's missing. And so um, she says that the songs are the way to get to the singing. Songs are the way to get to the singing. And the singing is about bringing vibration uh, through the body so that it changes us. So you come in to a place, you sing together, dance together, and you leave changed. And uh, for a lot of uh, our experiences in Western Buddhism, um, typically, especially if you come through the Vipassana world, you can spend 25 years meditating and never chant or sing. But in all of the traditions, um, origins in Asia, um, all the Buddhist lineages have a long, deep tradition of chanting and making sound. And it's been considered one of the tools for awakening. They're really technologies for well-being and for um, stilling the mind. I mean, we could, I could talk forever. It's my whole class at CIS is all about that. Why do we chant? Why do we sing? Why do we dance? What is the purpose of that in human culture and um, for healing and community and spiritual connection and all of that? But um, just to say that in Buddhism there's a long lineage and it's, it's really been understood. Uh, the power of song and chant has long been understood. So even if you feel like, oh, I can't sing in tune or, you know, it, it really is about um, moving vibration through the body. That's all really we have to think about today for the purposes of um, creating states of mind that lead to awakening and healing. That's why they were designed. So um, I'm going to start with a song, a chant, that comes from the teachings, the words of Thich Nhat Hanh, and most of us know him. He's a, a just, I don't know how old Thich Nhat Hanh is now. Does anybody know? He must be in his 80s. 87. Incredible teacher, one of the main bringers of, um, or translators of Dharma in the West, um, from Vietnam, he's an activist during the war, uh, and lives in France now. And he's also a nature mystic and a poet, which makes his teachings in some ways, I think, really emotionally accessible for us. And um, he creates these phrases that he calls gatas through his poems that that have been put to music. Then gatas are expressions of the nature of mind that um, are often described through metaphor and often through metaphors of nature. Um, this, this, uh, I guess this chant doesn't really have metaphors of nature, but um, it's, it's a series of gatas that uh, sort of give us instruction. So I'll just sing a couple lines and you can sing them back and we'll learn it that way. <laughs> In breath of breath, deep breath, slow breath, in breath of breath, deep breath, slow breath. Calm breath, ease breath, smile breath, release breath. Calm breath, ease breath, smile breath, release breath. So that smile part, 
it's an important part of his teachings, and, and it's, you know, we can get really irritated when people demand us to smile. <laughs> it is very irritating to be told to smile. But really, this is the kind of smile that's on the Buddha. Um, Buddhas are often shown with that little half smile, like the Mona Lisa smile. And it's this sense of ease. You know, it's really, um, and maybe there's some kind of inner amusement, you know? A lot of the great Buddhist teachers talk about life being pretty amusing when you start to really see it for what it is. That be, it might be that smile of amusement at how we, how deluded we are. <laughs> the things that we think are important, you know how it is. And, and there also is all, of course, the new um, brain neurology studies that show that um, actual smiling and laughter is, does have an effect on our neurology on our brains and ultimately on our health so there's something in it so you can just invite it if you if you feel like it um, especially if you feel like it's so impossible for you then you might examine it the smiling part and the second part goes present moment
as much as possible, inviting in that sense of ease. Softening around whatever experience it is that we're having, whether it's pleasant or challenging. Bringing a sense of ease to the experience by relaxing as much as we can around it. Letting ourselves sink deeper into the body. Just fighting in a feeling of release and letting go. Especially of the kind of mental activity and gripping that we can do by bringing the awareness more into the body, especially finding a neutral place in the body. Usually, if we're in pain in the body, there's somewhere that's free of, free, free of it. So if you are having any pain, bringing your awareness to a place that feels neutral and relaxing there. If you go to the San Francisco Zen Center or Green Gulch or some other places <coughs> where people sit, there's often a vow, the, the four vows of the Bodhisattva that people chant. I was thinking about them this morning because there's one, one of them that I was pondering, thinking it would be relevant maybe today. Um, and the, four, the uh, well, let's see, I only have three of them here. Maybe you know the other one. Uh, beings are numberless. I vow to awaken them. Maybe there's only three. Delusions are inexhaustible, unfortunately. (laughs) But I vow to end them. Um, And this one, Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The um, opportunities are endless for... Uh, encountering wisdom, really. Dharma being the deep understanding of the nature of things that in Buddhism they say when, um, you know, when, when you see that, when you understand the nature of things, that liberates us because it's this, these immeasurable delusions that cause us all the trouble. And, you know, in Zen, in some traditions, it's considered that in any moment it can happen. You know, just the sound of the bell can be enough. Or answering a koan can be enough. Various, then you move into more kind of um, zochen practices and practices where the teacher might just say something, and wow, you just suddenly get it, and it cuts through, right? So there's all these different ways um, to try to, to to enter in through the dharma gates, um, including our own difficulties, and often our own difficulties. 
my friend Eve Decker, who's come here and sung with you, I think, before, talks about that. So for her, the Dharma gate that helped, the, the gate that led her into the Dharma was her own suffering. I think it's true for many of us. Um, maybe if you go up for brunch afterwards, you could, your homework could be uh, <laughs> talking about the Dharma gates. Like, what were the Dharma gates for you? Because it's really fascinating in each of our own lives. We all, um, I love Joseph Campbell's, uh, he talks about how, you know, in, um, when our lives are happening, they feel random sometimes, you know. Maybe they are in some ways. Who knows? It's a debate. But um, in retrospect, if you look at your life and really, you know, um, tell the story of your life, everyone's is a masterpiece. Everyone is this great Shakespearean drama. <laughs> some of us more than others. And <laughs> but when you look back, it has, and, and there's meaning, and you can find those points of meaning. And I think for many of us, those are the those are the, the entrances, especially for us on this path, that we might call the Dharma gates. And I always like to focus a little bit on my own on my identity, my own life when I come here. I think it's important. So for me, um, growing up in the prairies of Canada and um, in the seventies, pre sort of especially in the prairies of Canada, it was pre women's liberation and pre gay liberation hadn't quite reached us yet, sort of was <laughs> making its way to Calgary <laughs> via the stagecoach. <laughs> um, so there was no internet, right? So we know many of us, I can sort of sense, were pre-internet um, teenagers. And uh, so to, uh, you know, to, to, to come to terms with identity, to come to terms with gayness in a culture or bisexuality or or all of the othernesses that many of us um, inhabit, um, of course, can involve a lot of confusion and suffering. But also, I, when I look back, um, can I think it's I could see it as one of the Dharma gates. And I've talked about this before here. You know, Eckhart Tolle talking about when you are an outsider from the kind of a mainstream reality, it's there's a gift in it because already you're you're questioning conditioned reality. You start to understand that we are living in conditioned reality. If you're the homecoming queen and everything is fine and you just everything just seems to be right, I think it can be harder in a way to understand that we're living in conditioned reality. Although, I mean, all of us eventually are forced to deal with that. Eventually the rug gets pulled up from underneath us. But um, you start to understand that, um, that we have been conditioned from a very, very young age to see ourselves, especially in a certain way, and it leads to so much confusion and suffering. And these practices, including the chanting, are ways to help us um, cut through that. So I see my own, uh, I mean, once I discovered um, various communities of people that reflected who I was, I was incredibly liberated, and I liked being an outsider. Many of you might relate to that. I kind of liked being a rebel because it was. Um, it, on, it, it actually led me into so many different areas of awakening, just not just sexual identity, but so it was the gateway in to being able to question many things, and it was a great gift. So um, I celebrate that today, and I see it as part of deeply part of my spiritual path, as I'm sure it has been for many of you. Uh, yeah, brothers and sisters through the some similar Dharma gates. Um, so this is a chant that 
is all about, you know, it, it translates roughly, um, the words are, Om Mani Peme Hum, I love it, um, because it's powerful, and it's the most chanted chant in the world, they say. Although I don't know how they go about measuring such things. <laughs> but apparently, well, you know, all of those um, chant, those wheels that you spin in Nepal and Tibet and stuff, that's all Om Mani Peme Hum, so just that alone, these constant spinnings of the mantra. And the message of the mantra is so beautiful. It's, um, the translation is hail to the jewel in the lotus. We kind of go, okay. But it's um, one of the translations and one of the meanings really is saying that um, it's not that we have to manufacture some new person or um, be redeemed in some way. Thinking a lot about my Catholic upbringing with the Pope resigning. How strange. Um, especially if you're raised Catholic, it's such an odd thing. And um, but there was, there is a sense, I think, deeply in um, many strains of, of Christianity of this feeling of being born flawed, and that you have to be redeemed from that somehow through various things, rituals and things that you do or believe. Sometimes over and over again, you have to be redeemed. But there, so you get you kind of you internalize this idea that there's something deeply wrong with you that religion or some kind of cultural expression can set right. And in this um, mantra, the mantra is saying actually it's kind of the opposite. It's that you're you're so deeply fine, and it's the the laying on of all these ideas that have caused us to feel like we're not okay. But it's actually not so much redemption. Well, those, I mean, that's, sometimes that can be a nice word in certain ways. But it's more like a remembering. It's like a waking up from a forgetting. Rumi's got so many poems about that, about not going back to sleep. So it's, it's so, such an optimistic teaching. I feel like, you know, even the worst of us, you know, those doing incredibly horrid things could be seen as being just so asleep. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we know that there are many stories of people suddenly waking up out of those spaces. They just suddenly see, you know, Amazing Grace. It's a song about a, written by a slave ship captain. I was blind and now I see. It's all about that, that kind of waking up to understanding. So, so this mantra is um, considered kind of like an energetic practice that helps can create the conditions in the mind so that can happen. So, Om Mani Peme Hum. Peme is the Tibetan way of saying Padme. And it just sings smoother, so I like singing that that way. And I'll sing a couple lines and you can sing it back and go that way. Om Mani Peme Hum.
noticing how the chat feels in you. Letting the resonance of the sound fill and move through every cell of your body. Continuing to relax. Um, but I was um, th- in thinking of this idea of Dharma gates. For me, um, throughout my life, including in my childhood, the natural world has probably been one of the most profound and easiest ways for me to um, enter into wisdom and enter into a space where I feel what they might call, what we call in Buddhism, my own essential nature. We all have had this experience, I think, where it's just, and it can happen in lots of ways, but um, I'm sure we've all had it in, in the natural world at times, which I think is why people, one of the reasons we love to be in nature, I mean, some of us more than others, <laughs> some of us can handle the rugged side of nature more, but some of us just appreciate the flowers growing in our gardens. Because you know, the, the natural world just just is. There are debates about whether there's awareness in nature. I kind of fall on the side of believing there's kind of a consciousness in everything. But there's just a, um, you know, like trees are not fretting about the future <laughs> or worrying about their hair or, or or worrying about death, you know? There just doesn't seem to be anxiety in nature about death. I mean, I have a cat that just died, my sweet Benny. He was with me for 18 years, and he he suffered. And I, I he did have, you know, some anxiety in his life, but it wasn't conceptual. He didn't spend his time lying around... Um, I'm, I'm quite certain. Um, conceiving of all the things that might happen that might go wrong, or thinking about the past and replaying it endlessly, you know. Somehow, as humans, we're this unique. We have this unique capacity, and then, of course, we have these unique gifts because of it as well. But it's, it, you know, it's it's problematic, and I think it's why the natural world is so soothing, and it can be such a mirror to us of what it means to just experience ourselves as as who we are, without all the overlays. I think it's a kind of direct transmission that happens when we just are quiet and, and silent in nature. And one of my, my heroes, um, he, I consider him part of, you know, I've had, I guess there are many holy trinities. <laughs> but for me, when I was young, Emerson, Thoreau, and Walt Whitman were one of the holy trinities. That, that um, their work, their thinking, when I was in high school, just suddenly gave voice to things that I had sort of known and was experiencing. And, <coughs> and I, I know Walt Whitman is, I just think, one of the geniuses of, of all times. 
and um, of course, in, there's been um, all the later scholarship shown that he was a gay American, and um, his leaves of grass is biblical in terms of his understanding of nature as being the most revelatory expression of the divine, really. And so I just want to read, if you have never really read Leaves of Grass, or if it was a long time ago, the very first stanza is so deeply dharmic. And he was influenced by Eastern thinking um, very much. All of the three were. So here we go. I celebrate myself. Gee, it's hard for me to see now. It's, I celebrate my age. <laughs> and what I assume, you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me, as good belongs to you. There's this teaching of non-separate self. I loaf and invite my soul. I loaf and lean at my ease, observing a sphere of summer grass. Houses and rooms are full of perfumes. The shelves are crowded with perfumes. I breathe the fragrance myself, and I know it and like it. The distillation would intoxicate me also, but I shall not let it. The atmosphere is not a perfume. It has no taste of the distillation. It is odorless. It is for my mouth forever. I am in love with it. I will go to I will go to the bank by the wood and become undisguised and naked. I am mad for it to be in contact with me. I am mad for it to be in contact with me. And Mary Oliver who basically said at a reading I saw her give a while back that she only reads Whitman <laughs> these days. <laughs> I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? So nature as this, the natural world as this gateway. So I thought I'd do something a little different. Um, I grew up in the prairies of Canada, and the town that I grew up in is most known for an event called the Calgary Stampede. People come from all over the world to go to the Stampede, which is like the rodeo. Um, <clears throat> the whole town turns into like this whole western-themed place. It's very strange. But um, I grew up in this beautiful land in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And north of that is a place where my brother lives called the Yukon. It's up by Alaska, and I've spent some time there in the last few years. And um, so I wanted to sing this to you. This is really about um, 
really about the natural world being a Dharma gate. It's got a little bit of, of uh, you know, you can't you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the girl. So um, it's got a little of that kind of country bluegrassy flavor. One in the morning, there's a full moon rising, spilling gold out on the bay. And I'm driving faster past Treasure Island, home is just another mile away.
It's already time for questions. <laughs> I think one more little poem before I do that. I brought this. Um, this is from Hafiz. This is for any of us today who might be suffering in any way that, that feels kind of acute right now, or um, you know, if you're in one of those moments when you're in the midst of it. This is another poem really about the Dharma Gates. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even spiritual ingredients will do. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God, the divine Dharma, absolutely clear. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God absolutely clear. Um, uh, so if there's any, are there any questions or comments? Yes. Can we just sing with you more? Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to do one, a little more singing? And, yes. and okay, so if there's comments or questions, we'll do. You can just afterwards. Okay, good. Um, I do want to make a little quick announcement so that I don't have to do it after um, that um, was mentioned. So um, in November, November second, in San Rafael at the uh, Civic Center Theater, there, I'm pre- pr- producing this really large event where. Um, it's based in, I guess I'll do that, maybe we'll do that now. It's based in this m- music that we're going to do together, uh, the loving-kindness practice. And there's 2,000 seats in the theater, and um, there will be musicians coming from all over the world, people who don't come from Buddhist lineages, but who share this desire to bring peace and um, healing to the world. And so um, it's a, a little bit like um, sing-along um, Sound of Music singer. <laughs> because the whole audience sings the entire time and chants these metaphrases. And then uh, we have Jack Cornfield and Joanna Macy and singers from Nicaragua and Tibet and India and musicians of all kinds from around the world. Um, and all of us together gathering and in, um, in a t- creating this, turning the space into a temple, really, where we do this practice together with beautiful visuals and all the rest. So November 2nd, and um, if you're interested, you can get on my mailing list and I'll send you a notice. We're in the process of um, doing a few things. So there's like, I'm just three quick things. Um, <coughs> some of you are, I know, singing um, choruses and are, are really great singers. I'm looking for a few singers for the chorus because we have a chorus of about 40 singers that, that sing the entire town on the stage. We're looking for some volunteers or, or maybe staff uh, who have done a lot of theater and <coughs> production work. And I thought this might be a good place to <laughs> <laughs> And uh, also very important, we're still try- we need to raise a lot of money because, you know when you go to the symphony and you see the Charles Schwab has underwritten it? <laughs> it's because the tickets for these things don't pay for the expenses because expenses to, to put on a production are so enormous to do it in a good way. So if any of you are philanthropists or have um, know people or have a business that you'd like to sponsor, 
It's going to reach, we're doing so much promotion. We have two universities sponsoring it, so it's going to reach at least 100,000, 150,000 people with our PR. And we can give you a logo on everything. If you have a business that would like to be a sponsor, because it's a, a lot, if we raise extra money, it will go to some wonderful organizations. So um, you can talk to me or email me if you're interested in any of that. Thank you. This is, um, will lead into the, some metaphrases that we'll sing together too. And in sending uh, the beauty and the wisdom of our practice and the teachings to ourselves and to the world. <coughs> I cannot turn my eyes. I cannot count the cost. all that has been broken, all that has been lost, I cannot understand the suffering that life brings, war and hate and hunger. And a million other things When I've done all that I can And I try to do my part Let sorrow be the doorway
guess so. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming. Thank you. It's always special when you're here. Thank you. I appreciate it. Announcements? Um, I am producing a Tantra workshop in early April. Um, I don't have any flyers with me, but if anyone's interested, you can talk to me after this. Any of those who are interested in joining the conference call on Thursdays at 9 let me know. Give me your information and send that to you. It's been consistent and uh, find it to be very um, useful, helpful, and uh, mindful. So certainly uh, let me know if you're interested in that. Our host? Yes, um, I brought a few treats. To the left of the table is probably not so healthy, kind of sweet stuff. Mm. And to the right is good intention, health, nutritional. You're <laughs> 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 uh, not going to always watch which side of the table you pull. <laughs> but um, let's see, there's a list. So if you want to get on GBF's uh, mailing list, so you can get the newsletter by email. That's to that side of the room. And let's see. Um, there's some hot soapy water in the sink, so if you do drink tea, um, I like washing dishes as part of my control. So <laughs> <laughs> put the cups in the... Last but not least, you get an opportunity to be very generous this afternoon, so I'll be coming around with the Donna Bowl, and um, I won't say anything, I'll just have the bowl with me, so just be generous. And a lot of us go <coughs> to brunch at about 12.30, and we meet just out in front, so please join us. Thank you. Parking meters. Concerned about climate change, there's a big rally at one o'clock to three o'clock um, at One Market Street in Market Hill Lane, three fifty dot org, etc. Anyone else? Welcome once again to the gentlemen that are here for the first time. Hope you can stay for the social hour. Please make them feel welcome. Let's go ahead and stand for the dedication. <laughs>
truth of this practice that all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.